What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matt, it's going pretty well, my man. I am in the peak of my holiday shopping right now. I'm trying to figure out what I'm getting everyone. What am I going to do? Um, and it's extremely difficult. You got to get the spreadsheet out for this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I was frustrated. I found, I'm not going to say who it is. I'm not going to say what it is, but I found a perfect gift for the person that I have in our, our friend group, Secret Santa sold out back order until March. So <laughs> I'm, I'm back to the drawing board. Um, uh, redacted. If you're listening, uh, sorry, I couldn't get you your first gift. <laughs> yeah. And you'll never know. No, they'll have no idea. Now you're obliged to tell them what it was like right after you give them the gift that you're currently going to give them. We'll evaluate how they feel about the the actual gift and take it from there. (laughs) All right, let's dive into this thing. climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Joseph Williams of the Associated Press, who writes, Spain pledges 350 million euros to save Donana wetlands. Pretty exciting news out of Spain, where the government has pledged the equivalent of 368 billion U.S. dollars to protect a world heritage site that ecologists say is dying due to climate change and the misuse of water. These wetlands are located in southern Spain and have been underprotected by Spanish government, according to a European Union court ruling last year. The wetlands cover 182,000 acres of land and are a wintering site for half a million waterfowl and a stopover site for millions of other migratory birds. The national parks, lagoons, and marshes have dried up due to drought and decades of agriculture. A nearby beach town has also helped to drain the aquifer underneath the wetlands. The area surrounding the park is home to hundreds of unauthorized wells that illegally pump water that should feed the wetlands in order to feed their crops. The article says that measures to save the park will include the reduction of extractions from underground water sources and the recovery of surface water. The World Wildlife Fund applauded the action by central authorities, but demanded that regional authorities do more to control the illegal extraction of water. And that's going to be really important because ultimately this is going to come down to how well this is enforced and, you know, Supporting the wetlands, great. Making sure that people aren't going to be using those unauthorized wells that are illegally pumping that water, that's going to be your real changer here. That's that's the game changer. So like the WWF said, the regional authorities, if they can do more to make sure that that doesn't happen, that's going to be an instant boost to the health of this wetland. Yeah, and we're talking about Spain too, which is like, I was actually just watching a video the other day about how it says like, or it said, um, 70% of Spain is like basically empty and it's not actually empty, but it's like all agriculture, um, land for farming. Um, and then also for like conservation and yeah, you would imagine how much 
a wetlands area would be extremely important for all of those things. Yeah, it's it's very critical to a lot of wildlife, a lot of uh, both flora and fauna. So yeah, protecting wetlands is critical. There's a reason that so many towns and municipalities have wetlands ordinances and, and have provisions in their town or city codes to protect those wetlands. So it's good to see the Spanish government making moves to protect them at a national level here. Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to the Spanish government. Hell yeah. All right, let's move on to our next story, and it's titled, Why Fixing Methane Leaks from the Oil and Gas Industry Can Be a Climate Game Changer, One That Pays for Itself, by Jim Crane of The Conversation. Methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, which scientists say causes over 80 times more warming across 20-year periods than the same amount of carbon dioxide. The silver lining about methane is that it does not hang out in the atmosphere for as long as carbon dioxide, so if we could stop methane leaks we can create a fast, measurable impact for climate change mitigation. Methane is the main component of natural gas, and its leaks can occur anywhere along the natural gas supply chain, from the wellhead, from distribution lines, or even from the burner of your home's gas stove. Methane is responsible for almost one-third of the 1.2 degrees Celsius of global warming we have experienced since the early 1900s. Because of the high potential to make a greater impact, reducing methane leaks was a big focus at COP27 in Egypt this year. 150 countries, including the United States and most of the big oil producers, aside from Russia, have pledged to reduce methane emissions from oil and gas by at least 30%. The article says that if those pledges are met, it could eliminate the greenhouse gas equivalent of all of the world's trucks, buses, and two- and three-wheeled vehicles. Yeah, this article also points out that stopping methane leaks can pay for itself relatively quickly. So the oil and gas sector is already configured to sell any methane it can prevent from leaking. So they will increase their own supply by fixing leaks. Unintentional leaks can flow from pneumatic devices, valves, compressors, and storage tanks, which are often designed to vent methane when pressures start to build up. Unlit or inefficient flares are one of the main sources of those leaks, and some companies will actually purposely burn off excess gas that they can't easily capture or transport. So that's going to emit methane and CO2 for basically no reason. Yeah, and the author writes that nearly all of these emissions can be stopped with new components or regulations that prohibit routine flaring. If the methane that leaks from global oil and gas operations was captured and used, it would generate roughly $17 billion. And $17 billion is a lot. And that's even more impactful when you consider that the International Energy Administration estimates it would take a one-time investment of $11 billion to eliminate roughly three-quarters of global methane leaks. So we're talking about an $11 billion estimate once, one time. Yeah. That could generate whatever three quarters of 17 billion is. What's that? Like $12 billion, give or take? Yeah. Quick math check. Math check over. Uh, it's $12.75 billion. Your boy Matt's estimate a little on the low side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're talking about something that will pay for itself and do that much good for the environment as a whole. This has to be a no-brainer. It really does. Yeah, I feel like I say this every couple episodes when we talk about some sort of new technology, but like we're past the point of do I want to choose between making money or do I want to choose between helping the environment? This is case in point mm -hmm. something where 
capturing all of that methane. We have the technology. We know it's going to cost $11 billion globally, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to generate an additional $1.75 billion in revenue just by being able to reuse that methane. Is that the best use of our money? Maybe not, because you know maybe we should be promoting using less and less oil and gas and, and producing less methane emissions. But in the meantime, before we get to that point where we are 100% reliant on fossil fuel free energy sources, then it's a hell of a lot better to absorb this and reuse it than it is to let it just drip into the atmosphere and contribute to global warming. Exactly. They're not going to stop global oil and gas operations tomorrow, so you might as well. But the U.S. is one of several countries that are strengthening methane rules to reduce emissions of the gas. The Biden administration is aiming for an 87% reduction of methane emissions by 2030. Yeah, and let's hope we get there. The article points out that the easiest way to encourage companies to clean up their methane is to tax them on it. So we could do an entire episode on the merits of carbon taxes. We're not going to do that. If you want to check out this article, it's in your show notes. Go give it a read and uh, let us know what you think of carbon taxes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, and the next one is by NPR's Juliana Kim, who writes, Al Gore helped launch a global emissions tracker that keeps big polluters honest. We just talked about one way to encourage companies to clean up their methane. Another way to do that and to help them clean up their other emissions would be to make that data public. You know, show us here on the planet today, show our listeners, show the world who is polluting what and where it comes from. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what former vice president and Climate Reality Project founder Al Gore is seeking to do here. Yeah, Gore helped the nonprofit Climate Trace create an interactive map that uses satellites, sensors, and machine learning to measure the world's top polluters. The tool has a fail-safe through artificial intelligence that makes it impossible to cheat without falsifying multiple sets of data. So this tracker can be a valuable tool for helping countries maintain their net zero by 2050 pledges. Right now, it tracks about 72,000 of the highest emitting greenhouse gas sources, and that includes every power plant, large ship, and large plane in the entire world. And that's all according to Al Gore. By next year, Gore hopes to be tracking millions of major emitting sites. So the database is free, it's accessible online, and it should help create more transparency for all people of the world who want to know where emissions are coming from. The article closes with Al Gore remaining optimistic, despite the fact that we are currently behind our goals to reduce emissions worldwide. He says recent efforts globally, including the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., and new governments in Australia and Brazil should be sources of great hope. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, it's really easy to fall into the doom and gloom of climate change because let's be honest for a second, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. Let's let's not rule out the fact that it is going to get worse in the coming decades before it gets better. But what's important to look at is like we have these sources of hope and there is still a light to say it can get better. And Truthfully, I believe it's going to get better. And all it's going to take is things like this, where we have, you know, good tech for cleaning up methane. Last week, we talked about good tech for cleaning up the PFAS chemicals. You know, we have this tool here where we could see exactly who is polluting what. So whenever we talk about greenwashing and we say that, you know, these companies are working to go net zero 
but they're not actually doing it. Here's a concrete way to hold them accountable mm-hmm. that's based on multiple data sets from satellite imagery, you know, tracking where pollution, where emissions are coming from. More of this and tools like this being built out further, what's the downside? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely. And I think a lot of what you just said is either about accountability, Mm -hmm. um, what information we're getting that is actionable, you know, like that we can go in and say, okay, well, this is happening to the earth. So let's go ahead and do this instead or um, adapt this way. And lastly, just giving the public the tools themselves to make a difference in their own environment and in their own communities that will overall make a difference. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, like we get fired up on this show and we talk about these big polluters. It's going to be a lot easier to get more people fired up when they look at their homes and they say, oh, you know, there is a very large emission source coming from 15 miles down the road. Mm -hmm. You know, once we start getting people the information that they need, the information that we have, the information that people deserve to see, there's nothing wrong with transparency. And if transparency scares people, it's because they're doing something wrong. Yeah. So let's, let's go for it. I mean, I'm, I'm all in on this. I think public tracking of emissions data, really, really important. And it's going to be a really useful tool. Agreed. And then you have like the, the consumerism impact of that too, is like people not, if it's a company that has, you know, is selling a product or a service, mm-hmm. you'll have people who will just not support the company anymore. And that will force them to take action. Yeah. Force them to to get better. Exactly. All right. We're about to take a quick break. When we get back two more quick hits for you, send you into the weekend. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, it's official. France bans short-haul domestic flights in favor of train travel by Lottie Lamb of Euronews. The European Commission gave France the go-ahead to ban all domestic flights between cities that can be traveled to on a train ride of less than two and a half hours. France is also cracking down on private jet rides for short trips. In practice, this means that routes from Paris to Nantes, Lyon, and Bordeaux will be impacted, but connecting flights will also have to follow these rules. The ban on short-haul flights will be valid for three years, 
after which it must be reassessed by the commission. I was going to get into a quick quote, uh, but before that, Nick, kudos to you on the pronunciation there. I don't, I don't speak French, but it sounded very good to me. <laughs> My girlfriend does. Okay. And that's why she helps me a little bit. So maybe that's it. Okay. Shout out, shout out to Name Redacted. I don't think we've, we've aired that on the show yet. <laughs> no, we have. Oh, well, shout out to her. <laughs> um, so anyway, quote I was going to get into comes from Transport Minister Bjorn in a press release who said, this is a major step forward in the policy of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Sarah Faioli of Greenpeace France did criticize the move for not being very ambitious because, like Nick said, this only impacts three routes. She called it a step in the right direction, but we shouldn't really look at this as this sweeping measure that some people were hoping for in terms of domestic airfare on short trips. Yeah, we always talk about how Elon takes like his 40-minute like trips from like San Francisco to like whatever it is, uh, that stupid mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, I think, whatever. I don't know what it is. Um, and this is like another example of like people taking what could be such a short train ride anyway and taking a flight instead. It's not even worth the emissions that it's putting out. Like it's not, the flight is so just wasteful. Yeah. Um, and I like that they put, this is unrelated, but I think Google has this now, like Google Flights has it where you can see the emissions of a flight and it'll say like 22% less emissions than yeah. you know XYZ flight, whatever. Um, so that's definitely a step in the right direction too. But yeah, I think only affecting three routes is, it's not enough. It's just not enough. You know, like there, there are more routes that I, I know in France that probably would be just as, just as long. Like I'm thinking like Nice to- Nice to Paris was the first one I thought Yeah, of. exactly. I think nice it's like Paris. a 45 minute plane ride. Yeah. It might be, it might be longer. I think it might be like an hour and 20, hour and 30. I don't even know. But um, yeah, that's, it's, it's just like not enough routes, I would think. Yeah. And I think it's important that, look, with something like this, we're going to give you exactly how we're feeling. And in this case, this is a good thing. Yeah. It's not perfect. So when Nick and I are sitting here criticizing it slightly for saying, yeah, this is good. I don't think it goes far. I don't want you to be there listening and thinking like, oh, they think that this is a bad, a bad decision. Yeah, no, this no, is good. Agreed. But what we're striving for is as close to perfect as we can get. So frankly, this is good, but only impacting, you know, two and a half hour flights. I've never flown domestically in Europe. So I can't say for certain, but I know when you fly domestically in the U S you have to get to the airport pretty early. Whenever you, whenever you take a train ride, you can show up two minutes before the train boards. So, you know, if, if you're taking a two and a half hour trip, when you factor in getting on the flight, clearing through uh, TSA, at what point does it get offset by the train just being quicker? You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about France's like train system. I know Spain has like a crazy yeah. amount of high speed train. Um, I don't know about France. Same. I would assume it's probably just as fast as like Italy. I've been to Italy. It's it's the train system is pretty good. Yeah, you can get you can get the fast train. You can get the slow train. It's all priced differently. But yeah, I, I would assume it's probably somewhat similar. We should also mention quickly that France has been incentivizing its citizens to switch from cars to electric bikes. So look, the country is making some really positive steps towards lowering its emissions. This is another one of those positive steps. I'm just not ready to sit here and call this a positive leap. Yeah, agreed. A step, not a leap. That's one small step for France. Yeah, 
not a leap. All right, our last quick hit of the week is by Salon's Matthew Rosa, who writes, outdoor cats are an invasive species and a threat to themselves, scientists say. All right, before we get into this, this is not an anti-house cat article. Um, (laughs) It gets into some things that are saying basically like, if we're going to get cats as pets, let's keep them indoors. Here are the reasons why having outdoor cats can be harmful. Um, I don't want anyone who is listening that heard that headline to just like tune out. This is not anti-cat. Don't worry. (laughs) Next time somebody tells you that windmills are a hazard to birds, play them the next five minutes of this show. A recent study in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution found that free-roaming domesticated cats are, quote, a downright menace to local wildlife, which is largely due to the irresponsibility of their human owners. The study analyzed eight native mammal species, five of which are commonly preyed upon by cats, and three of which are vectors of disease. It found that where there are more cats, there are more interactions between cats and disease-carrying mammals. Daniel Joseph Herrera, a PhD student studying urban ecology at the University of Maryland College Park, said, Our research was driven by a desire to inform more effective and humane population management practices for outdoor cats to protect cats and wildlife alike. The study found that if humans allow their cats to roam freely, the odds are high that the cats will interact with all wildlife in an area. So, like I said, this isn't anti-cat by any means. This is pro bringing your cats inside and letting them be house cats. Because cats that roam outdoors are subjected to a variety of serious risks, including vehicle traffic, poisons, injury, and disease. Across the U.S., domesticated cats have contributed to the extinction of 63 species of birds, mammals, and reptiles. And domestic cats are the top source of direct human-caused bird mortality in the U.S. Outdoor cats are estimated to kill 2.4 billion birds every single year in the U.S. Wow. That's more than the 1 billion birds estimated to die from window strikes every year in the U.S. And much more than the 140 to 328,000 birds estimated to die from wind turbine collisions. Yeah, and that's, that's all to say that, look, when people say that wind turbines are a threat to birds... If we're going to go the high end of that estimate, 328,000 birds, that's not zero, right? Like that's, that's significant. That's something we should look into. Yeah. But if we want to talk about the real issue and again, like I I hate using that argument, I hate what aboutism, but if we're going to do it, let's be fair and say, sure, 328,000 birds, that's a lot that die from wind turbine collisions. 1 billion birds die from just hitting buildings, hitting cars, like hitting windows of stationary things. There are ways to get around that. You can use glass that has a different hue. You could put soap on the glass so that Mm -hmm. birds don't fly into it. Like there are ways around that. So to me, a higher number with a much easier fixable solution is what we should be focusing on. And if, if that's just what, how I feel about window strikes, imagine how I'm feeling about outdoor cats that are killing 2.4 billion birds every single year. Yeah, that's a lot of birds. I don't know if anyone can think about how much 2.4 billion is, but... We got to break out the rice again, like everybody did when we were talking about billionaires and how much money they have. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. I can't see anything without rice. Without rice. (laughs) Um, But no, I... uh, Here's the thing. This is going to sound anti-cat, and my girlfriend always says I'm anti-cat. I don't like cats, really. 
Um, and that's fine. You know, like we're we're separate. You subscribe. You subscribe to the the house pet binary. There are only two dogs and cats, and you've always been a dog person. I've always been a dog person since my birth. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, hearing that they should really be indoors isn't too surprising. Like, I feel like how many how many people though like have had their cats run away? It's an insane amount of people. So yeah, it happened to my cat when I was little. There you go. So like. It's like- He's like three or four years old and Bubbles ran away. And all of a sudden we got another cat named Bubbles too, like two years later. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Poor Bubbles. Oh God. But yeah, I mean like you're killing that many birds. It's, it's unnecessary. That's the only word for it is unnecessary. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's not, not anything that we should continue to do. Yeah. Personally, I, I am more of a dog person if I had to pick one, but I love cats. We're thinking about getting a cat in the new year because we miss having a pet in the apartment. And uh, they're a lot easier to take care of for dogs in a small New York City apartment. So mm-hmm. if we get one, I can say for certain it's going to be an indoor cat. I'll get one of those little backpacks so I could take it to Central Park and like bring it out on a little leash. But no, I mean, like I'm not going to have an outdoor cat and you can call me a hero for protecting birds by doing that. Um, <laughs> you don't have to. I will. But yeah, some people are going to throw a hero around and that's fine. I will take that. It's the end of the year. <laughs> The show is almost over for 2022. It's time for me to accept the role of hero. Matthew Hero Norton. That's what people are saying. This article <laughs> closes by saying that people just need to rethink the idea of cats only hunting unwanted pests in their yards because that, that's the reason a lot of people like outdoor cats. They keep mice away. They keep rats away. But cats can't target just mice. The author writes that using a cat to prey on unwanted pests is like hunting with a grenade when one Mm. bullet would do the trick. Damn, that's a great analogy. Love that. Yeah, and on that analogy, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we're going to be back for our last interview of the year. So Matt spoke with Graham Stewart of Fiber 52 about a more sustainable method of cotton production. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email, or you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music that you hear throughout it. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at SoundCloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.